Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast, here with also Dr. Brad Dieter. And today we have a super special guest that we're going to learn everything you ever wanted to know about protein metabolism uh, with Dr. Stu Phillips. He's the director at McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research, and has been studying the effects of protein and resistance exercise for a long time now. Brad and I were talking before the call, and I think the first presentation I saw from you was, I think, ACSM in 2005, and I know you've been doing stuff before that, so welcome to the call. Thanks for having me on the call, guys. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, Stu, this is a this is a great conversation ahead of us, and I've been uh, wanting to get on the line with you since I was probably in high school. I've been uh, following your work <laughs> for a long time, so this is uh, it's kind of an honor for me too. I'm really excited. Okay, you're, you're making me feel old, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I told him too. I'm like, oh, I feel old. <laughs> um, so for people who may be living on a rock and haven't heard of you, do you want to give a little bit of uh, background of what you've done so far? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've been at I've been at McMaster University now since uh, 1999. Uh, professor in the Department of Kinesiology. Got an affiliate appointment over in uh, medicine as well. Um, the main thrust of the lab is understanding the interaction between uh, exercise and nutrition. Predominantly, as you guys have said, protein. Uh, we do some other things as well, but um, really uh, trying to understand how those two stimuli. Uh, come together, I suppose, and, and, and result in a change in muscle phenotype. We also, sometimes we, we don't use activity, we use inactivity, so we make people wear a knee brace, we make them do less activity, but it's always around understanding loading or lack thereof um, in the interaction with nutrition. Nice. And for people who are maybe a little bit on the newer side, why does most of your work look at protein? I know, like you mentioned, you've looked at um, other effects, and you've done some studies on hormones and things like that. But uh, how did you get into studying the effects of protein specifically? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know really how I got into it, but I, I, I when I came to uh, the end of my undergrad, I knew I wasn't ready to be done learning, and I, I hooked up with a guy named Mark Tarnopolsky, who at the time was um, doing some work on protein turnover. And the point he made to me, and it's definitely true, and it rings true today, is that. Um, if you look at all the macronutrients that we consume, so fats and carbohydrates and proteins, of all of them, we really only have a daily requirement for a small amount of fat, really not very much carbohydrate, and we can argue on that, and some people say we don't require it at all, and I probably would agree, uh, but we have a definite requirement for protein, so it's an absolutely necessary macronutrient. It's the one that drives our ability to be able to uh, gain and or if in some cases lose muscle. So it's it's really, uh, I think, of all of the macronutrients, the, uh, the most important. Very nice. And so we mentioned that protein isn't really stored. It's stored in muscle tissue itself. So it kind of leads to the next question of is there sort of a – I hate the word ideal or optimal, but is there a recommendation for the amount of protein someone should have, let's say, especially if they're doing resistance training? Yeah, so, I mean, I always use the the, the recommended dietary allowance as the, the base of my argument and say that uh, so long as everybody understands how I look at the, the RDA, which is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram uh, per day, which really, you know, if you're a 100-kilogram individual, so 220 pounds, that means 80 grams of protein. I, I sort of look at that as that's a complete minimal amount of protein, and and that's how it's defined. So you, you offset deficiency by eating that amount. And the point I make is probably you could live on that, and, you know, you, you wouldn't be doing the greatest in terms of uh, promoting adaptation, but let's just say that's the base then in my opinion, you can probably go to about two times that level or about 1.6 or maybe a bit higher to about 1.8 grams per kilogram. And you could get uh, some beneficial adaptations. So exercise would promote some type of stimulus and then the protein would augment that effect. So I think it's about... 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo per day. And above that... I'm not convinced your body can actually use that much protein or use it efficiently anyway. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, higher protein intakes coupled with, you know, resistance training. Um, what about those higher intakes in people who are more sedentary? What are kind of some of the, the physiological adaptations that occur with just higher protein intake regardless of some of the training? Yeah, so the, the, I, I always talk about three things when I talk about protein as a potentially advantageous macronutrient to consume. So for, for starters, you know, protein has a, a tremendous thermic effect associated with it. So when you, when you eat protein, you expend a little bit more energy to, uh, to, to assimilate and digest and, and, and store the protein away. So I sort of say to people, well, you know, you're burning a little bit of extra energy when you increase your protein intake. So the second thing is that there's of all of the macronutrients, satiety is a big deal. So it makes you feel satiated. It makes you feel full, and so it can control help control your appetite. And then in the third, I always say, well, you know, and it drives the synthesis of new proteins. And so I, I think to your your question, Brad, it's really a situation where for sedentary people, when you're consuming a higher protein diet, you're burning a little bit more energy. You're probably feeling quite satiated because of the signals the protein sends to your body, but you don't really have a lot of ways to kind of stock it away. And so since you're not exercising, you're not providing a stimulus for your body to make new proteins, particularly in your muscle, um, then really, uh, you know, some people say it's wasteful. Uh, I look at it as being useful on two of the fronts that I've already Mm -hmm. spoken about, but it's certainly not going to create new muscle in most people who are uh, over-consuming, if that's the right word to say, protein. Awesome. You know, I think that's a, that's one of the topics that a lot of people don't really dive into too much of, you know, a lot of times we'll see, you know, higher protein diets used for in a lot of weight loss studies and things like that even, and they're used regardless of, of training and, and stimuli like that. So I think it's one of those other tools that we can kind of put in our toolbox to use. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about, you know, what happens to the extra protein, you know, so to speak, the over-consuming of protein? I think a lot of people have ideas that, you know, it gets stored as fat and, you know, some of the ways that your body processes protein that's a little bit different from the other macronutrients in terms of storage and things like that. Yeah, so the, when I'm talking to my students, I, I say to them, I, I said, imagine you, you only needed 2,000 calories, and so I use that as sort of the nuclear number, I say, and you know, you consume 2,200 calories, but the extra 200 calories, if you look at it this way, come from fat, well, we're very good at storing fat as fat, no problem, and then they say, okay, yeah, I get that. And I said, what about carbohydrate? What happens to it? And they're like, well, uh, it gets stored. And I'm like, yeah, but your your stores are all full up. So you haven't used much muscle glycogen because you haven't done too much. I said, where does it go now? And they're like, oh, well, can you turn it into fat? I'm like, absolutely, you can. You're, you're very good at that. And then protein, is it's a little bit different. Everybody sort of says, oh, well, and, and a lot of people will say, well, you just store protein as fat. And, and that's not true. In terms of... All of the amino acids that you have that make up protein, there's only two of them that are remotely good at being what we call lipogenic. So it's very difficult for your body to make uh, fat from amino acids or from extra protein. And so if there's any, if you like, extra amino acids or extra protein hanging around, then what your body does is it removes the nitrogen it forms urea with that nitrogen and it has to do something with the carbon skeleton that remains. And either you burn it or you turn it into something else. And the predominant substrate it gets turned into, if it gets turned into anything, is carbohydrate. And so it's really a situation where it's pretty darn difficult to turn the extra protein into fat. So is it, um, I guess, accurate to say that in order for protein to be turned into to fat, you know, when you're kind of overeating, is it first has to go from protein and then turned into carbohydrate and then eventually turned into um, fat and then stored. So it's, it's a much um, longer, more difficult process, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. It requires a lot of input of energy to do that as well. I mean, those are, you know, to turn a, a carbon skeleton from a, an amino acid into carbohydrate is an 
energetic process, okay. and then you have to turn that carbohydrate into fat. So it's a it's a rather convoluted biochemical pathway or series of pathways, in fact, that you have to go through. So yeah, it's just one of the least efficient uh, macronutrients that, to get turned into fat. And you know, I think we're beginning to accumulate some evidence now in people who are consuming very high protein diets that it just doesn't turn into fat, even if they are over consuming energy. Yeah, and yeah. Dr. Jose Antonio did a study on that where he was, you probably, I'm sure, saw that where he was massively overfeeding these you know, recreational type athletes on protein. And he said in the, the biggest complaint he got in the study was actually the compliance of getting them to do that. And they used, you know, protein supplement and other things like that. And he just said a lot of people as they were doing the study just complained that they were so full and so sick of protein they had a, a hard time just trying to massively overeat on it too. Yeah, and and that's the that's the data I'm referring to. And it you know, I, I think that um Dr. Antonio's work it, it really does highlight that uh you know, your body adapts quite well to higher protein intakes, and it is. But it is a situation, as you point out, Mike, that to say that uh, you know you've got this big hunger signal going, and at a point you're just like, okay, too enough. You know, yeah. <laughs> my my protein stat says I'm full here, and and, and you know the, there there are some theories out there, and um, there's a couple of Australian researchers, uh, uh, Robinheimer and Simpson, who sort of subscribe to this protein leverage hypothesis, and once you begin to lever protein as the bigger macronutrient in your diet, then everything else is down-regulated to say, actually, you don't need to eat as much food. You, you've got the one thing that you really need. So um, it wouldn't surprise me that that's uh, anecdotally what people report. In those type of situations then, do you, since your body gets a little bit more accustomed to quote-unquote using protein, do you have a higher amount of breakdown then? So in theoretically, if you went from a super higher protein to a lower protein, would you have more muscle kind of being recycled and not built up as much then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that as, as when you get on these higher protein diets, that your ability to be able to remove the nitrogen and form urea, it has to be upregulated. You know, most... Um, most people appreciate when they begin to look at um, how mammals function is that nitrogen is fundamentally toxic. You have to get rid of it. You can't have it hanging around a biological system. So you have to upregulate those the systems to get rid of the amino acids and, and, and you would probably have a greater rate of deamination, oxidation and, and urea genesis. There's, there's no question about that. So yes, if you were on a higher protein diet and you wanted to get off of it or you decided to get off of it, then you'd need to do it gradually to avoid a little bit of, uh, I don't know if it would be muscle loss that you'd experience, you might, right. um, but definitely some sort of adaptive response that would make you um, in, a, in a negative, put you in a negative nitrogen balance for a transient period of time. So it's best to sort of step your way down if you're on a high protein diet, if you're thinking of, uh, of ending that phase. Nice. And we'll come back to the high amounts of urea and related to kidneys and that type of thing. But do you want to explain a little bit for people who are a little bit newer about how uh, muscle protein synthesis and also breakdown work and what you would do to kind of move those in a better direction? Sure. Uh, I think the analogy that I use, and, and it sort of serves a lot of purposes, and most people tend to get it when I say, you know, this is how it works, is to say... Uh, if you imagine that your your muscle in your body is like a brick wall and you know the brick wall requires new bricks to go into it to keep it healthy and if there are old bricks that are kind of damaged they get taken out and if you imagine that the brick wall that is your muscle mass is you want to make it bigger then obviously you need a net number of bricks that are greater than the net number of bricks being taken out so you need more going in than being taken out. So on a daily basis, every time we eat protein, the building blocks or the bricks, the amino acids come into your system, they get put into your muscle, and then when you don't eat for a period of time, you actually take a few bricks back out. And over the course of the day, the wall stays pretty much constant. Now, over the course of a period of time where you're lifting weights, 
what the weightlifting does is it sort of uh, gives the process that puts the bricks into the wall kind of a kickstart, and you begin to put them in at a rate that's greater than the rate that they get taken out, so the, the wall gets bigger. And really, there's one brick uh, out of all the 20 bricks, so out of the, all the 20 amino acids, uh, and it's an amino acid called leucine. It's one of the branch-chain amino acids that really, if you like, turns on the process of making that wall. So it really fires up the protein synthetic uh, machinery within your cell, particularly your muscle. And it really triggers the process to be able to, to make new muscle proteins. So if you consume proteins that are higher in leucine, and so dairy source proteins, for example, uh, meats, a lot of animal source proteins are quite high in leucine. Isolated soy proteins are quite high as well then it really efficiently turns on that protein synthetic process and it promotes that uh, anabolic state that's uh, accompanying the protein ingestion. If you layer that on top, the exercise, your muscle is sensitized to that effect and you get this net accretion or, 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 or accrual of uh, protein over time that then becomes muscular growth. Um, so you, you touched on kind of a, a big topic in there that, you know, since we have you on the line, I figure this is a great opportunity to have the conversation, um, you know, leucine and the branch chain amino acids. I know that there's been, you know, a lot of, a lot of talk and discrepancy and, and things like that about, you know, branch chain amino acids and what their exact role is and then how like supplementation with those versus just normal dietary intake um, actually works, and I know you and I have had some some discussions on um, online about this. Um, and I'd love to hear you know a little bit more about um, your thoughts on BCAAs in terms of dietary BCAAs, and then supplementation with BCAAs. Sure. So I think that there's there's something to be understood here is that when you take people who are consuming protein in the range that I was talking about, so 1.6, 1.8 grams or or more, um, then I don't think in any situation that a branch chain amino acid or a leucine supplement could augment what the protein in your diet is doing. I, I just there's there's no further capacity to be able to stimulate the system. You're topping out the rate at which you can put bricks into the wall, and as we talked about earlier, you're probably upregulating all of these protein degradation systems or the systems that pull the bricks out of the wall mm -hmm. at the same time. Now, when you begin to pull things back down to low, lower dietary protein intakes or maybe you're cutting energy because you're trying to lose body fat or something like that, then I can begin to see a role for some of these dietary supplements. Um, so leucine is, if you wanted to draw a hierarchy of all of the branch chains, it's, it's the king. It's the top of the heap. The other two branch chain amino acids are isoleucine and valine. And they, to me anyway, they sort of come along for the ride. They're, they're part of the branch chain group that are enriched in muscle. And so a lot of people then have favored the intake of these amino acids as a combination, the three of them. The main problem when you take them in the crystalline form of a branched-chain amino acid supplement is that they, they compete with all the same transporters. So if you take you know, two grams of leucine, but you also take isoleucine and valine on top of that, then the, the grams of leucine that might get into the system would be a little bit less. I'm not necess necessarily saying that's a bad thing, but I think that it would be more efficient from my standpoint to just take in leucine if you're thinking about doing something like that because then it's, it's sort of uh, alone by itself and it does the job, as I said, of, of triggering protein synthesis. So, uh, and what I really think in the end is, is that when we talk about the supposed advantage of these supplements is that I've yet to see a study in which the branch chain amino acid supplements have been shown to be better or more effective than uh, a full protein-containing supplement, which would really uh, trigger the protein synthetic response and have all of the other amino acids as the supporting cast necessary for a, a full protein synthetic response. 
And but I it, stand to be corrected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is it true that the amount of leucine you'd want to get per meal, in addition to obviously other amino acids, is probably around the 2.5 to 3.5 gram mark if you were to try to put a, a number on it for someone that's going above and beyond that really wants to make sure they're hitting that threshold per meal? Yeah, I mean, you know, tip of the hat here to, to Lane Norton, mm-hmm. who's really done a lot of work in this area to define that dose. I, I, I'm still not sure we know exactly what it is, and but uh, I would be willing to bet that, um, that the recommendations that Lane makes of around 2.5 to 3.5 grams per meal per dose would would, would be um, would be about right. And, and you know, it would be really great to know exactly what that is. I don't know whether we're ever going to know, but uh, I think that that's probably around the right intake level, yep. Yeah, so for people who are listening, if you're getting around 20 grams of a whey protein or, you know, maybe 40 grams of a lean protein source, would you say that's probably a pretty good dose to shoot for per meal? Yeah, exactly. I think that that really hits the target for um, most young, active, particularly if you're lifting already, then you've already sensitized the muscle to the effects of the leucine anyway. So I think that that's the type of per meal dose that I'd recommend. And we hear a lot of stuff about soy protein, both good and bad. But from um, your perspective, what are your thoughts on soy? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it comes back down to once you all plant source or vegetable source proteins um, are lower quality by their very nature. And that's just how, you know, nature made these proteins. That's just the way they are. Once you take the plant protein and you isolate the protein source away from the other anti-nutritional compounds, so once you take a soybean and you you take out all of the um, antagonistic compounds, so things like dietary fiber, for example, and you isolate the protein source, then uh, it's a pretty good quality protein. In fact, you know it's 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 score. Um, under the at least the old scoring system would have it to be uh, about equivalent to that of milk protein. Hmm. Uh, I don't think it's quite that good. Uh, some of the work that we've done shows that you know, you need a little bit more soy protein to match the milk protein, but it's but it's up there. Um, I wouldn't you know malign it as a protein source under any circumstances for any other reason other than it's just not quite as efficient. So you have to eat more of it to get that leucine dose that we've been talking about. Very nice. Do you have a question, Brad? Yeah, I think another, you know, kind of big question that's out there that a lot of people ask is, you know, is there a, the the per meal upper limit of what actually gets put towards building new muscle tissue? And, you know, for years there was the idea of, you know, don't eat anything more than 30 grams in a given meal. Um, oh, and, no. you know, obvious, obviously the... Uh, <laughs> The truth is a little bit more nuanced than, you know, if you eat 31, the, you're, you're going to blow up or something. Um, so what, you know, kind of talk to us a little bit about how the body actually handles, you know, larger intakes of protein in one given meal. Sure. Uh, you, you know, I, I think so. I think that there's, there's questions within questions. And, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a much more nuanced answer than 30 grams per meal. So, so let me just say, you know, to start off is that your body has an incredible capacity to uh, digest and assimilate protein. So if you ate 130 grams of protein at a given meal, which that would be a lot of, lot of protein, but doable, I'm sure, within uh, some of your some of your <laughs> My, my jaw would probably hurt yeah. more. Yeah. It's a quarter cow at once. <laughs> You know, so, you know, so even if you ate that much, your body could digest that. And, and I think that that's the, you know, maybe the important step is people say, oh, you just can't digest it. And I'm like, you know, you actually, you're pretty good at digesting. Rarely do you see undigested protein end up, you know, just simply bypassing all digestive process and ending up in your feces, for example. It just really, it doesn't happen. Um now, having said the fact that you can digest it and it does get into your bloodstream and it is available then for all of the wonderful things that we like for protein to do, again, it comes down to say, what can your body usefully do with that protein? Remembering that we don't have the capacity to store it 
as fat. We don't, we can't, you know, we don't excessively make a lot of blood glucose when we don't need it. And you really can only use those amino acids for protein requiring processes for a short period of time. And so this is where all of these urea generating enzymes and they go into overdrive to process that extra nitrogen load that's that's there. And, you know, some people, I, I, I think, are under the impression that we have a place to kind of store some of this protein, these amino acids away. And we, and we really don't. We, we might be able to expand some of the protein pools. We might be able to put it into gut protein for a little bit of time, but it doesn't hang around. Um, so it, I think the answer then is, you know, how much can we digest? The answer is a lot, a, a heck of a lot. How much can we use? And that's the real question, I think. Um, that's still out there to be determined. We've made some estimates in some very controlled studies that you can use about a quarter gram of protein per kilogram per meal. Um, it could probably go higher than that if you're looking at mixed meal uh, sources of protein. All of our studies come from isolated protein sources. And it would probably matter, you know, how active you were, um, you know, what your state of, you know, general nutrition would be otherwise. The more calories you eat, the more efficient you are. So you, you can actually get away with, with less protein. But it, in, in other words, you can digest a lot. What you can use and what your muscle can use also is probably dependent on how much muscle you activated in the last workout. So if you just did a you know, uh, a big bicep concentrated workout, you, you know, as big as your biceps might be, they're not a huge reservoir for the protein that you're going to digest. So if you just did a big lower body workout and maybe you switched in some upper body as well, now the, the, the source and the site for utilization of protein is much greater. So yeah, you can use more, but on a per meal basis, it's not that you shouldn't eat more than 30. It's that, you know, you can probably reasonably put away a lot more protein. How much your body can use is still not sure that we really know, to be honest with you. And I, I think there was a study that was relatively recent from uh, Dr. Bob Wolf's lab that looked at, uh, if I remember right, I'm not looking at it in front of me, but I think it was up to, was it a 50 or 70 gram dose of protein? But I think they were only looking at nitrogen balance. Is that correct? Or do you have any more info on that? Yeah, it was 70 grams. And, and what they were using there was whole body protein turnover. So uh, they, were, okay. they were looking at, they, they used a whole body method. And they did show that you got stimulation of whole body protein synthesis that was greater with the uh, 70 gram dose than with the 30. So there, there were other proteins being made. Uh, and I've had this conversation back and forth with with Brad Schoenfeld mm -hmm. on mostly on Facebook over these data, yeah. and and I, you know I I know I know Bob quite well as well. So I think that Bob interprets that data as saying is that, that it might be more muscle protein synthesis. And what I've said to him and Brad, and I'll say it here again, is that I've yet to be convinced that that's the case. But again, maybe it is. Uh, if it is, I think it's a relatively small bump over and above the 30, but it stands to be uh, to be shown. And, and I mean, I, I guess the, the situation would be, you know, to feed somebody more protein, but in 70 gram meals and, and to show that it does have uh, an enhancement. So I don't know if anybody's going to do that study. One way of getting at it that we're trying to do it is uh, to look at all of the data from all of the studies that have used protein supplements and to do what's called a meta-regression to sort of say, mm -hmm. what's the dose of protein that really begets the, the biggest muscle gains? And uh, so we've, uh, we've teamed up with uh, a lot of great minds out there in both the uh, academic as well as the, uh, the, the social media world who are quite <laughs> knowledgeable in this area. So hopefully we can produce something... Uh, you know, more definitive, if you like. Yeah, that'd be very interesting because I remember being at the ISS conference, ISSN conference, when he was presenting that data, and it was like, oh, oh, wow, because you know, all the the meatheads in the audience, myself included, are like, yeah, see, more proteins, even better, you know. So everyone got all <laughs> very excited. <laughs> well, I think one of the things, and and you know, so. Um, 
Dr. Antonio and I have discussed this, and, and, and he would make the point, and, and I keep coming back to this, is to say is that you know, you, you've got to put some energy in the machine, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're feeding yourself and you know, if you had a choice of the macronutrients to, to, to you know, put on your plate and, and consume, then protein is not a bad choice in my opinion. And that's the, really the – I think the bottom line is uh, you do get full when you eat it. It does serve a useful purpose. At a certain point, I think you obviously get into diminishing returns. But the main point is that you know when you're picking and choosing macros, I, I think it's a situation where yeah, you got to put something on your plate, and so long as you can tolerate it and it fits into what you think is optimal for you, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever say well you know you got to dial back the protein; uh, it's less useful. So yeah, I mean, of all the choices, I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah, I mean, just pragmatically speaking, it's for most of us. I think it's almost hard to overeat protein. I mean, from uh, from real world kind of perspective, for most people, I think that's probably the one of the things that's hardest to overeat. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you know it, it depends on what your goal is as well. And for most people, like I'm, I'm not you know by any means competitive in athletics or anything anymore. Um, and, and I'm not trying to keep my uh, shape for a figure competition or, you know, getting down to 4% body fat for bodybuilding. So, you know, from my perspective, I tend to center my diet around protein, but I, I'll let the shoe drop and say that I, I enjoy eating bread, you know. And if that, <laughs> oh, no. If I'm going to die a few years go. sooner, I, I'm still okay <laughs> with that choice. <laughs> and, and, and every now and again, I eat, I eat some, you know, some poorer quality fats as well. And, you know, but um, that's the main point. I mean, what's the goal? What's really the, uh, the end game? And, and you know, if it is about uh, getting yourself down to the 4% body fat level and preserving muscle at all costs, then, then protein is a, it's a good choice. Yeah, I think a lot of people, humans in general, are kind of wired for black and white and, and linear. So they hear that, well, if I eat more than the RDA, that's better. And we can make some pretty good arguments. I think you've said that that's probably true. But then they make the next leap that's, okay, if I'm up at you know 100 grams, so now I double it to 200 grams, that's going to be twice as good and 300 and so on. But it's it's not a linear response. It's kind of uh, goes up and then kind of, like you said, diminishing returns at time. And, you know, probably at some point there's going to be a high cost associated with that too. Yeah, I, I find that most people who live in the extremes in terms of uh, dietary practices, that and, and it works for some people, just, just like a normal mm-hmm. distribution and you know, right around the middle is where some, most people like to be, uh, for good or bad. Uh, and then some people can tolerate and do tolerate exceptionally high protein. And I have lots of friends who uh, follow a, a vegan, vegetarian diet. Who, when I took, I take a look at their protein intake, they're down around 60, 50, 60 grams per day. They and they don't, you know, they, they're fine. I, you know, so it, it, it's possible, and it's it's not my choice. But I, I tend to live clo- closer to the mean than I do to the extremes. Yeah, and once you get on the the high end of protein intake, it's kind of hard on your wallet too. I've noticed. So yeah, well, that, <laughs> yes, it is. That's the argument. That's the argument I I use with a lot of yeah. athletes these days, and I I sort of make the point is to say they go, well, if I'm taking this supplement, that supplement, and this, and I said. You know that's that's great. I, I said, how much money do you have in your wallet? Because that's my <laughs> point is that it it's an expensive uh, macronutrient to buy. You know, and it's probably I mean it has to be the most expensive. You can get, you know, a couple of hundred kilos of rice for the cost of uh, one quarter, or probably a lot less in terms of uh, protein or meat if you if you think about it. So, yeah, what's uh, what's your goal and how much money you have in your pocket? I guess. Yeah, and I'll get Dr. Brad to chime in on this too, but one of the other potential downsides you hear all the time, and I've, man, I've heard this for well over a decade now, is that, you know, all that protein you're eating, and then we're talking about just healthy athletes in this case, you know, that's going to damage your, your kidneys. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, so, I, you know, uh, this this is uh, probably one of the, 
the most perpetuated myths, this and protein is going to cause your, your bones to dissolve. Right. So <laughs> we need to be clear on a, on a few things is that, so you don't have to take my word for it. Um, although we're working on a few analyses, which, and, and, and again, you can measure uh, kidney function. So generally that's uh, glomerular uh, filtration rate is the sort of hallmark of renal or kidney function. And, the World Health Organization, as well as the Institute of Medicine, so the, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, sets international protein intakes, and the Institute of Medicine are the people responsible for setting the uh, dietary reference intake. So they're the people who uh, talk about the protein RDA, and if you look at both of their documents, they come right out and they, they say, and you know, for, for people who are interested, I can send you the links and to the exact quotation that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, that there is no link between protein and progressive decline in, in kidney function. And so I say, don't take my word for it. These are, these are some pretty learned people who are saying this. It's not just me. And then everybody says, oh, but people who have um, renal disease and, and, and kidney failure are on low-protein diets. And I say, absolutely. Your kidneys, when they begin to fail, and it's a sad day because it's a horrible, uh, horrible disease, um, they work better when you don't put a lot of solutes in your blood. And one of the solutes that your kidney filters as part of its daily routine is urea. So you go on a low-protein diet because you produce less urea, and that prolongs the life of the useful life of your kidney. At a certain point, your kidney's no good. Maybe you're on dialysis. If you're on dialysis for long enough, then maybe you're a candidate for a kidney transplant. So, yeah, it's the dire consequences of, of having kidney failure. So I think that most people say, well, look, you have kidney failure. You're on a low-protein diet. Ergo, the high-protein diet caused the kidney failure. And my point is that's like saying, well, one day I wrote a test I failed the test, the sky was blue, ergo, every time the sky is blue, I'll fail a test. And, and I mean, it's trite to say, but that's the circular logic that's gone on to say, well, high protein caused renal failure. There's actually no evidence for that. So the step that's missing is to say, when you go on higher protein diets, what happens to your glomerular filtration rate, your kidney function? It actually goes up. It, it, your, your kidney adapts. That's what we do. The circular logic or the missing link in terms of the is then to say, and that eventually then causes renal failure. And, and I say, okay, cite me your best evidence. And the answer is there is none. And so as soon as people, you know, start digesting that and they, you know, they go on PubMed and they, they you know, they contact their former physiology professors like me and say, but, 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 and I'm saying, there's just no data. There's no data. So, uh, and then, you know, so I kind of come back and I say to people, well, just get your facts straight before you start saying stuff like that. So, and I'm not saying that if you're on a, you know, a uh, low protein diet for, you know, kidney failure, that it isn't a good thing. There's lots of evidence to show that that is the case, but high protein diet begets kidney failure i'm sorry there's just no data for that yeah you know it's do it's, it's really interesting um my kind of field right now is actually nephrology and chronic kidney diseases where my uh my academic life lives and you know when you actually go in and look at all of the the research even in the mouse models our lab did some high protein diet and um, diabetes and kidney failure stuff is you know, there is no, unless the system is already damaged and screwed up, there, there's no evidence, even in animal models who, you know, mice typically don't fare well on high-protein diets. I mean, even they, you know, if they're normally healthy animals, even they don't see, you know, evidence of chronic kidney disease even in, in those models. So the uh, it's uh, hopefully this is one of those myths that just will slowly kind of die as we beat the dead horse over and over. Well, you know, I, I, and I, I appreciate your comment, and I think it's it's really a telling sign when you get preclinical models like mice and rats and these sort of things, and you can induce you can induce renal conditions in these animals 
if you, for example, remove one of their kidneys and or you make them diabetic or something like that. But the process of, um, you know, renal damage in a, in a rodent isn't exactly the same etiologically as it is in a human. Now, if you go to a renal ward and you talk to people who are there and receiving dialysis, the vast majority of them are, are diabetic. Now, I'm not saying all. But under a situation of diabetes, then I could certainly, you know, make an argument to say, well, you know, maybe you want to look at your protein intake. But for young, healthy, very active people, um, one doesn't beget the other. So, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, hopefully it'll, I don't know if it'll ever go away 100%, but um, looking for, searching for the data for the link, I, I just don't see it, so. Yeah, our friend Lonnie Lowry, who you know also, Stu, is, did a very nice study several years ago now looking at protein seekers versus non-protein seekers. So in essence, a higher protein group than the other one. And they did all sorts of markers of you know kidney work and function. And exactly what you said, they saw that the kidneys were working harder. But if they looked at like microalbumin or a marker for more kidney damage, uh, they did not uh, see that either. So I think there's a, as you mentioned, a confusion sometimes in people's logic between kidneys are working harder versus they're being damaged from that additional work. Yeah, and and, and I mean that's the main point. You know, like you said, if you take people who are on a low and then you put them on a high protein diet, their glomerular filtration rate it it goes up because you know your kidney has a remarkable ability to to adapt. The, the point then is that people say, well, and then you're on this yeah. high-protein diet and eventually you, uh, you know, and I've heard the word, you exhaust the kidney. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so. Just quits. Shows yeah, it doesn't just, show up one it's day, It's like, you know. oh, man, I'm so tired of filtering, you know, so. Um, <laughs> I give in. <laughs> I hate to be trite, but that's what people say. Well, and then you exhaust the kidney. And I said, so where's the evidence of this kidney exhaustion? And they're like, well. <laughs> Because people on renal wards, and I'm like, but that's that's not the case. <laughs> so anyway, I think it's I think we've sort of done that one to death, and hopefully it'll people will begin to talk a little bit of sense. And, and, and to be fair, I think when you you talk to most uh, urologists or nephrologists, whoever when you call what you, they want to call themselves these days, but they're beginning to say, you know, that's just not the case. There's a host of factors associated with uh, renal disease and declines in in renal function. But the the age-associated decline in renal function now is, I think most people are beginning to say, you know what, that's just kind of part of aging and, and that's the way things are. It's not necessarily a lifetime of high-protein diets or kidney exhaustion per se. Very nice. And one other question here, and we'll, we'll start to wrap up as we get closer to the end. So we've talked a lot about you know protein dosing and things of that nature, but... Um, what happens when you do the opposite? And I know you've looked at this a little bit in your lab in terms of not having any protein. So, for example, like intermittent fasting. So, say you take a 24-hour period and don't have any food or anything coming in. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what happens there related to protein? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, I think it's, again, you come back to the, the building the wall analogy is if you're not putting the substrate in, then, uh, you know, you, you tend to siphon off some bricks from the wall. I mean, muscle, as much as people who exercise value it is essentially in situations of complete caloric deprivation, that's, that's what's going to give up its amino acids. It's the big store of protein in your body. Um, so you can uh, promote the retention of those those amino acids and your muscle protein by lifting weights because that's a fundamentally anabolic stimulus. But at some point, you're gonna you know you're gonna lose some protein mass. So it, it's a I think it's a fairly easy uh, analogy to understand to say eventually the the, the wall is gonna shrink and get a bit smaller. Yeah, I think the, the big debate becomes into what is the exact time course, right? Because people would then argue, well, I don't eat anything overnight. And then what about 12 hours, 24 hours? You know, I think there's, I think that's where the debate comes in in terms of time. I don't think anyone can really argue that fasting is the fastest way to upregulate protein um, building. 
think the debate is about how much do you actually lose, which I haven't seen a ton of really good data, at least in terms of the very uh, short-term acute time frame. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, if if it's if you're talking about hours, then you know, my point to people is is to say, um, you know, we require um, isotopically labeled substrates to determine how much protein is gained or lost, and even with the most um, liberal and conservative of estimates, there's no way that you could within hours. Uh, measure yeah. on, on any sort of scale the amount of muscle that you use or would lose, excuse me. So I I think in that situation people have just gone, you know, slightly batty around the, the <laughs> concept of, you know, how much am I going to lose? And well, I, and I sort of make the comments say, well, it's probably in the range of milligrams, but you know, uh, big. Uh, caloric deficit, very extreme exercise, extreme environments, compounded days over days, and you know some of the most uh, interesting and um, I think revealing data is to look at some of the data that people like uh, Steph Patsiakos have generated, and um, in uh, you know Army Rangers mm-hmm. who were out in the field and on restricted food rations and are just you know absolutely you know, balls to the wall in terms of the activity that they're doing. And these guys will lose a ton of weight. And, and you know, why shouldn't they? Yeah. But, but, but that's, you know, to, to bring that back to sort of reality, I mean, the amount of protein that they're eating and the amount of energy they're consuming and the amount of energy, more importantly, that they're expending is, it, it, to say it's extreme would be, it would be an understatement. An understatement, so, yeah. They're yeah, yeah. Stressed I mean, out of their minds know, and... Pre-post pictures on those guys oh. are something else. They, they, you can tell that they've been put through the ringer. But that's the whole idea. I mean, that's the type of training and the type of environment these, um, you know, the guys at the tip of the spear might have to deal with, right? So, um, but for most mere mortals that are, you know, maybe intermittent fasting, and you know, my point would be is that yeah, it's a great method to lose a little bit of body fat if that's what you want to do. But it's not a great method to put you in a muscle gaining fully anabolic state yeah do you have any last minute questions before we wrap up with a little summary there dr brad no this has been awesome it's uh it's been a great conversation Stu. it's always great to hear your perspective on uh, a lot of these things you always bring so much so much clarity and you know make it easy to understand so this has been a, an awesome conversation uh, thanks those are generous words i appreciate it yeah, and the last question is, what would be your top three sort of action steps for people regarding protein and exercise? So if they just happen to tune in to only the last couple minutes of the podcast, what would you want them to more do in their, their life regarding protein? So so there's probably a couple. The first one is I'm not 100% convinced that supplements, protein supplements are necessary. I think you can do all of the good things that protein does for your body and in combination with exercise with real food. But you have to be judicious about how you plan that. So, you know, the, we're, we're not obsessed with the post-exercise anabolic window anymore. I think most people have yeah. agreed that that window opens for a lot longer than we thought. But let's just say that you know uh, dollars for dollars in for uh, benefits uh, reaped, if you like. Um, I think a, a 500 mil container of uh, you know dare I say even two percent or full fat milk because you know full fat milk is in these days uh, <laughs> would, would do as would do as much for you as X number of grams of protein and this that and the other. Uh, from a whey uh, shake or something like that, and and, and I'm not saying that whey is a bad source. It you know it's a great source, but it's not the cheapest. And so I, I sort of come back to you know when when people say what's better, whey or milk, and I'm like, well, where does whey come from? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So a lot of people say they go, well, well, I'm not. I don't know. Part of the well, it comes from milk, you know. <laughs> So, so dollars invested for returns reaped. I think I think food does a lot of the job. Protein supplements are convenient and they can help. And I do think that if you know maybe you're you know you're pushing for a podium finish at Rio this summer, then power to you and and go for it. There's no question about that. And they can be 
remarkably useful in certain situations. So I think that I think the food does the job. I think you have to plan it carefully, but but it can be done that way. Um, I think that the second point is maybe to come back to the the message of you know some is good more than the RDA. I believe is better, um, but more than more is maybe not a good idea. So there's a point of diminishing returns. But then to point number three, and this is where Dr. Antonio would say, well, but if you had to make a choice, and I'm like, you're right. Joey, if you had to make a choice, <laughs> eat some protein. He'd probably tell so, you to eat some sushi too. Yeah, yeah well, sushi. you know, you know I, I, I mean, the main, <laughs> the main point is to define your goals, right? And yep. at some point, yeah, you got to put something in the machine. And, and, and definitely if you're looking to lean out, if that's the right word, if you're looking to shed a bit of body fat and you're looking to hang on to a little bit of uh, muscle, then protein is your smartest choice. There's no question about that. But all of this is based on you still have to go to the gym because everybody just wants to out-protein not doing a workout. So as I say to people, you know what, without going to the gym, none of this applies. So, Yeah, no, that, that's a good point because I think in sort of the lay public a lot of times it's what is the, the super fruit or this or that that's going to magically transform me. And it's like, ah. The more we learn, the more we're like, yeah, eat, eat food, eat, you know, different macros, go exercise. You know, a lot of times after all the very fancy, very sophisticated research, it comes down to kind of pretty basic stuff for where we're at. So, Yeah, sim- simple works. And, I'm, uh, you know, it's a bit of a boring message. But uh, if, 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 you know, people just bought into simple works, then... A lot of uh, stuff on Dr. Oz and a lot of other shows would lose its appeal, right? So people want to superfood themselves out of a, you know, a crisis of being, you know, 100 pounds <laughs> overweight, and and it's just not going to happen. So uh, you know, and the sooner we we start believing that it's it's consistent practice of a few simple things that matters, then you know, we're all going to be a lot better off, but you know, that's, that's a crappy book and nobody wants to have you on the show to say <laughs> and that. And what would, what would we do on Facebook with all of our, exactly. yeah, I know. Well, be bored there, silly. I know. there'd be no arguments and be like a rational world. Yeah. Yeah. Today I post, point. Hey, simple works, consistent practice. And you're like, no oh, shares. Yeah. No crickets. crickets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No debates. No, no. Wouldn't be exciting at all. <laughs> yep. Well, awesome. Well, thank you very much uh, for being on the program. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and everything. I've been, you know, following your stuff for quite a while and always excited to see more research from your lab and everything you have going on. So thank you very much for doing that for us today and helping us spread the good word right from right from the researcher, which is awesome. Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. It was it was great to be on. And and I do love doing these things. I think it's really important for uh, People like myself who, um, you know, we, we get money from government institutions and I work at a, a, a state-funded uh, university here for to get the message out beyond just writing a scientific paper. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Okay, Yeah, guys. thank you, Stu. It was great. My pleasure, Brad. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.